You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Is death really the end? Uh, but with any topic like this, there's a there's a few different things to consider. So how are we going to um, how are we going to work our way through this this afternoon? So first of all, we want to ask. We'll do this in a series of, of questions, if you like. So we'll say, well, why would we explore this topic? Why is this of significance to to us um, living in 2022 here in Australia? Why would we want to explore this topic? Why is it of interest? Secondly, okay, so what uh, what are the common common views that are around us that people have on life after death, and where, what are the conclusions that come from that? Where does that lead to if you if you take those views? We might say, okay, well, we've considered what uh, people in general around us see upon this topic, but we want to just compare that now because, as you know, what's popular opinion is not always fact uh, or always supported by the reference, which in this case is the Bible. So what is it that the Bible can tell us about this topic and how does that align or, or not align with other popular views on life after death? Is there, in fact, a hope offered by the Bible? Let's, let's explore that question. And if so, if the Bible does suggest some form of life or hope beyond death, beyond the present life, what does that look like? And then at the end, we have to ask the question, well, that's all very interesting, the Bible says, but what does that mean for us here today? And, and is this something that we can be a part of? So let's, um, let's head into our topics then. Just to set the scene then, what, you know, why would we consider this question? I mean, if it was a clearly established fact that there was nothing, in fact, beyond death uh, and no one ever considered it, no one even questioned the fact, then we wouldn't be holding this address, would we? We wouldn't be considering this topic. Um, so I did just uh, check some statistics. And uh, according to the, the Australia Thinks survey, which, which collects the opinions of Australia and Australians in, in survey format, while you would say Australia isn't the main atheistic country, it's interesting that, in fact, about half of people in Australia would still say that in some form or other they believe in a God. Um, there's one in five that say they're actually atheist. You've got to understand that then there's those who say in the between, we don't know, which is, you might say, somewhat a safer ground. So an atheist is someone who declares um, categorically that there is no God versus someone who says, well, there could be something out there I don't know. But then there's half half of Australians who say, I do believe there's a God. And, and why is that relevant? Well, similarly, those who believe in a God uh, typically believe that there is some form of life after death. So about 55% of people believe there is some form of life after death. In terms of what that looks like, approximately 50% of those 55 believe that that is uh, a life in heaven for for the faithful. So that's the, the typical uh, Christian view. So th that means there's another 5% of people that believe in some other form of life after death, be it a, you know, a reincarnation of something of that, those forms, which um, some of the Eastern religions do follow. So it, interestingly, although approximately half of the people surveyed would agree with the concept of heaven and of uh, people going to heaven, 
after death as perhaps a reward or, or something similar. Only 30% believe in, in the opposite or, or, or the counterpart, you might say, to that, which is people going to hell for perhaps of doing things which were subpar doing life. Um, so there is those who, who prefer the positive concept of a reward in heaven, but um, less of that take to the negative concept of hell. But it still is, you know, 30%, there's still a fair proportion of Australians that accept that concept. So, so that's like you, why you might say, well, yes, this is a topic of interest. There's still at least half of Australians have some interest in this topic. If you're attending this um, as someone who either doesn't believe in God or is unsure, is there evidence that God exists? Is there evidence that the Bible is true? We'd really love to talk to you. Um, that's not our direct topic today. So we will be taking the, the Bible as an assumed authoritative reference for the, the subject we're exploring. But if you question the authority of the Bible itself and whether it is in fact inspired, whether God in fact exists, these are all really valid questions and we'd love to talk to, the, to you about them at another time. So but just to take that uh, understanding of how we're coming at this topic and what the, what the typical beliefs around this are or the typical understanding that people might hold um, for, let's say, the, the popular Christian view. So of those 50% of people or, or 55 who believed um, in some life after death and the 50 who believed it was a life in heaven, what is that concept? So as we've got on the screen there, the two key Elements to that is that there's a belief that those who believe in Christ, believe in the, the, the man Jesus Christ, who is described uh, in the New Testament of the Bible, and live good lives following Jesus, will be given a reward, and that reward will take the form of eternal life in heaven. So just an extract there from a um, Christianity.org says that Christians look forward to heaven as a place where people will find complete healing and everything about their identity uh, will be enhanced to its full potential. In that context, they'll enjoy the, the love of God and each other forever. Okay, so in simple terms, uh, people see heaven, uh, in the place where the Bible describes God resides. So, you know, place in the sky beyond this earth somewhere, uh, not clearly identified, but um, but it's a positive place, they believe, where people will enjoy themselves uh, and they'll live there eternally. On the other hand, those who they say, uh, reject God, go to a place called hell. Uh, and that word does occur in the Bible. But the popular or the mainstream, I should say, Christian belief is that hell is a place uh, with everlasting fire, so it's continually burning, not going out. Uh, and the purpose of that place is that um, the souls of people who uh, have not obeyed God in this life uh, will be continually tormented in hell as opposed to uh, eternally in, in a state of um, paradise, you might say, in heaven. So fairly simplistic, I think most uh, people who've come in contact with mainstream Christianity would have come across those concepts. The interesting thing is that for either of those concepts to work, there is one underlying concept or assumption, you might say, people are making. And that is that there is this concept called an immortal soul. So you may or may not have heard of this, but uh, mainstream Christianity does use this term, um, the immortal soul of a person. So just to break that down, what, what is that considered? Well, I just uh, cross-referenced an encyclopedia as to what the typical understanding of this concept is. 
And they say that it's, it's an immaterial aspect or an essence of the human being that consists of our individuality and humanity. So, so it's something that's not tangible. My soul is not my body. It's not my arm. It's not something physical I can point to. It's, it's the inner self, they would say. In theology, um, Britannia goes on, the soul is further defined as a part of an individual which partakes of divinity. Okay, so it's not just the fact that there's this essence in me that makes me Daniel. Um, it is that this essence um, is immortal. It continues. So once my body um, passes away, that essence that defines who I am as a person, thoughts, feelings, all of that, individuality, survives my body when, it, my, when my body dies and um, disintegrates. So you might say, okay, that's an interesting concept. Um, the Bible does, again, use the word soul. You will see that occur if you go through the Bible. But where did that originate? Well, the encyclopedia itself actually points out that this originated, the, the concept of an immortal soul originated not in the Bible, but in Greek mythology or ancient Greek beliefs. Um, it's a name you might recognize there, Pythagoras. I'll see if I can say him. Um, uh, Pythagoras. Pythagoras, I'll get into it right today, um, believed that the soul was of divine origin and existed before and after death. Plato and Socrates uh, also accepted that the immortality of the soul. Um, and early Christian philosophers adopted the, the Greek concept of the soul's immortality and thought of the soul as being created by God uh, and infused in the body at conception. So it's pointed out to us there that um, you know, pre-Christianity, if you like, or, or independent of Christianity at least, um, there were Greek beliefs around this concept of <clears throat> an immortal soul. So some part of the body that body or, or part of the person, I should say, that doesn't die uh, and that continues on once the body has deceased. So that is the part, they say the soul, that is the part that can then transcend the body and either go to heaven if the person is being rewarded or to hell if they're being punished. Um, even though we can see the, you know, the body may be a corpse that's in a coffin or in the grave. So does the Bible support that concept that there is a part of me or a part of you um, which has thoughts and feelings and consciousness that can either experience the pain of hell or experience the bliss of heaven and that that can persist after the body has died? What does the Bible say about this topic? Now, before we plunge into what does the Bible say, we are breaking this into a couple of sections. And that is because to answer our question, what really happens or, or you know, is death really the end? There's really two answers. There's a yes and a no. So just to confuse you. So is death really the end? And the first answer we're going to look at is yes, in certain circumstances. Second answer we're going to look at is how can it be no? But the Bible clearly describes that the default state after death, if there's no connection with God, if there's no belief in the, the hope that is offered through Jesus Christ, the default state of every human that dies, uh, death is a cessation of thoughts and feelings. So take a look at a couple of these quotes, and you're welcome to turn them up if you've got a Bible handy. Um, just to confirm, this is what the Bible tells us, Psalm 6 verse 5. A person writes here, the, the psalmist, for in death there is no remembrance of you. That is no remembrance of God. 
in Sheol or the grave, who will give you praise? Let's um, also in Psalms, uh, another example, by the writer says in Psalm 30 verse 9, <clears throat> again, he's speaking or conversing with God, having this discussion about you know, the prospect of death. Um, clearly he was, he, was, he was afraid of death at that point and he was conversing with God and trying to, to uh, express why he felt dying was not a good, good idea at this point. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will the dust praise God? Will it tell of your faithfulness? So that's an appeal or a question that the writer is saying. Then in Psalm 146, sorry to be jumping around a bit, um, still in the Psalms, 146 verse 4, the psalmist here is rather than making a question, he's making a statement of what happens at death. And he says of a human at, at death, in one, Psalm 146 verse 4, that his breath goes forth, he returneth to his earth, that is physical earth, so the dust, in that very day his thoughts perish. So do we notice some, some patterns that come out, some facts that come out of these statements in the Bible? Firstly, there's, there's no remembrance of God in the grave and God can't be praised there. So to extrapolate that out, if, you, if, if a being can't praise God once they've gone to the grave, that means there is no part of us that can express feelings post-death. Similarly, Psalm 30, the dust can't praise God. It's telling us that when we die, Every part of us, that the whole being ends in the dust that we disintegrate into. So the body, you know, whatever is part of us, our, our personality, there's no part of that that just that wafts away and, and, and is able to continue on and express some feelings or thoughts towards God or, or towards anything else for that matter. That is gone into the dust, and therefore it's the dust that can't praise God. And then very clear in Psalm 146, thoughts perish at death. So in that day that he dies, his thoughts perish. So there's, there's no room in that statement for <clears throat> the belief in a conscious existence, be it an immortal soul or something like that, that continues on once the body has died. So the Bible's quite clear on this topic, and there's other, other quotes we could go into, but I think that's enough just to make that point. So you might say, well, that's a bit negative. I thought the Bible was a positive book and that it offered reward for serving God and things like that. Um, but it's clearly just saying that, you know, once we die and that, that's, that's it in this sense and there's, there's no more thoughts, there's no more feelings, can't praise God. So, so what, what is the Bible offering then? Well, the good news is that there is a hope after death. Now, it doesn't, it clearly states that when we do die, all that thought, feeling, etc., does cease, but it doesn't say that it can't be restarted again. So that's probably the, uh, the hint to the answer to this question. So is there a hope after death? Well, yes, the Bible does speak of something beyond the present life. The Bible talks about a reward for believers, and it terms it, it has a few different terms, but a common one is eternal life. And this is quite a well-known phrase. You, if you're uh, familiar with the Bible at all or Christianity, you may well have heard this quotation in the New Testament, uh, John chapter 3. Again, you're welcome to turn it up if you're following along. Very, uh, very famous statement made in, in John chapter 3 um, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And speaking um, to his audience, he says, 
For God so loved the world, that is all the people within the world, that he gave his only son, that is Jesus Christ, that's the person who was speaking, that whoever believes in him, that is believes in Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. Now I'll just make a qualifying um, point or, or explanation of that word, not perish. It doesn't mean that someone who believes in Jesus will never die. I think it means perish in the eternal sense. So it means they will have an opportunity to have eternal life in the future. It doesn't mean that they might not die at some point in between. Okay, and I think that'll become clearer as we go along. How does that work, Daniel, you might say? Well, let's just, just hold that thought for a minute and we'll work through it. Another quotation um, describes it in the word immortality. So this perishable body or the, the natural human body that we're all um, possess at the moment must put on the imperishable the thing which can't break down. This mortal body must put on immortality. Okay, so the concept of immortality is there in the Bible. It's not an immortal soul. It's actually talking about our, you know, being in our physical bodies and living again eternally uh, with immortality, which means not capable of dying again. That sounds pretty good to me. So there's a few things. If you break this down, there's a few points that come out. It suggests that the hope the Bible offers after death is actually a physical change of nature in the human being. Importantly, though it's immortality that's offered, it's at a point in time. The reason that's important is the concept of an immortal soul, on the other hand, would say that, you know, in some cases it always was, or at least from conception, it always will be. So the immortal soul concept says that, oh, the soul never dies. It's always immortal. The Bible, on the other hand, says no. Immortality is something that happens or is given to a person at a point in time. They didn't automatically possess it from the beginning. And that's a really important point to make. Well, if you think about it logically, for that to be given to you as a reward, to receive immortality as a reward, you have to go through a probation, don't you, before you usually receive a reward and be you know, judged worthy of that. Well, if I've got all mentality to start with from the moment I'm born, well, it's hard to give it to me as a reward later for being good, is it? But notice, as we said, it, it, receiving it depends on actions in this life. So that last quote on the screen, to those who by patient in well-doing seek for glory, honour and immortality, God will give eternal life. So there's a connection between what we do in this life and receiving that gift of eternal life. Okay, so we've established that, yes, the Bible does offer a hope. It does offer something beyond the present life, beyond death, and it calls it eternal life and immortality. But you know, that's great as a concept, but let's put some meat around those bones. You know, how, how is that gonna happen? When's that gonna happen? All those sorts of things. But firstly, let's just put to bed this concept of eternal life being in heaven or on earth, because we said, that uh, Christianity mainstream does put forward the idea that there is a concept of eternal life or immortality, but it's, it's in heaven that we receive it. Or, or for those who are faithful believers, you might say, um, the reward, the place they live eternally is heaven. Again, the Bible is very clear that actually, contrary to popular opinion, the hope offered to believers is a hope on earth. Just take a look at a couple of these quotes. They're all quite similar. Blessed are the meek, says the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, for they shall inherit not the heavens, but the earth. In Revelation, where it describes a time in the future 
where faithful followers of Jesus will be rewarded, it says that you have made them, that is the believers, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign as priests and rulers and administrators, not in the heaven, but on the earth. And again, even in the, the well-known Lord's Prayer, you'll notice that, that the statement, that the call for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done is linked with it being done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's, it's on earth that the Lord calls for God's kingdom to come and to his will to be done. You might have noticed there the term kingdom coming out. <clears throat> and that's, again, a strong biblical concept, particularly in the New Testament. So there's a time, there's a, a period, there's an age when this reward is received. And it's termed in the Bible, the kingdom age. Well, for a kingdom, you need a king, don't you? So how's that all going to happen? What's this going to look like? Let's just go through a bit of a, a what, how, when. So what is the Bible's hope beyond death? Well, it is to live in what's termed the kingdom of God with someone. Well, it's with the Lord Jesus. We need a king, don't we, if we've got a kingdom? So that's, that's the reward. That's the hope the Bible paints is that there's a king who comes. He has a kingdom. It's a new world order. It's a new age on this earth. And those who have been followers of him in the present life, he will reward when he comes with power himself in his kingdom. So Matthew 25 tells us the king, that is Jesus, will say to the people that are on his right hand, that's those who have followed him, are accepted, come you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So that's the reward he offers them. Here, here I am, I am now the king, I'm here on earth, and I'm offering you a place in this kingdom that's prepared. So well, that's fine, but Daniel, you said when we die, what about someone that lived thousands of years ago, a faithful person even in scripture, but they've died. And as the Bible says, their thoughts have perished, they've disintegrated dust. How are they going to suddenly be there with Jesus in a kingdom receiving a reward? Well, the answer is this term in the Bible, resurrection. And, and the resurrection is something that's not probably spoken of as widely in, in popular Christianity, but is a really huge topic in the New Testament. In fact, it was the key message which Jesus' direct followers, the apostles, preached as they went around their known world. And this comes up in uh, a couple of quotes we've got there. Second of Corinthians 4 verse 14 says, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and present us with you. So it's making a correlation here between what happened to the Lord Jesus after his death and what will happen to believers <clears throat> at a later point. So he that raised up Jesus, well, that's God, isn't it? The point being made here is that as the Bible attests, the Lord Jesus, although he was crucified as a historical fact, was raised from the grave. He only spent three days there and was seen by a large number of witnesses, up to 500, as the Bible recounts, alive. So that is the resurrection which is attested by the Bible. That is the first resurrection to eternal life. But the Bible says that's not the end. There are other people that can take a part in that. Jesus was just the first. And the same person that raised up the Lord Jesus can also resurrect others who follow him. And it says in Luke 20, once they are resurrected, they cannot die anymore because they have a nature that's like the angels of God. 
And if you explore that in the Bible, the angels are, are beings which are uh, undying, powerful beings, and, and people who carry out God's will for him. It says they are the sons of the resurrection. So there's our term. The resurrection is the event. That's the time when all these people who have been faithful to God through the ages can stand again, even though they might have passed away in, uh, in history, and join with Jesus in his kingdom. And then just uh, when does that happen? Well, if you look at the last quote on the screen there, it is when the Lord Jesus comes, a time described by the Bible, Christ's coming. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruit. So, yes, so far it's just Christ that's experienced this resurrection event uh, and received this gift of immortality. But there is a time, it says, a later time when others can go through the same process. But that is when Jesus comes again. Now, we're not delving into that topic hugely, but the New Testament talks a lot about Jesus' return. Now, back to our point that the reward is on earth, not on heaven. And this whole kingdom concept we talked about is something very literal on earth. And Jesus, according to the Bible, is at this time in heaven. Well, for those two things to happen, Jesus has to come back to earth, you'd agree. So we have a kingdom on earth. We need a king to be there. At some point in time, the Lord Jesus needs to return back to this earth physically, visibly, to carry out this resurrection and to reward these people as the Bible has stated. Okay, so we might say, well, that's all, that's interesting. And that's quite a, um, quite a positive hope that the Bible offers really, isn't it? But what does that mean for us? And well, to go back a step, how do we get here in the first place? So, so if God really wanted people to be living on the earth immortal, why did we start dying in the first place? How did that all happen? Well, if you come back to the beginning of your Bible, the answers are right at the beginning. So after God created, as the Bible recounts in Genesis, <clears throat> the first man and woman, he did so as a, a kind and generous father and put them in a beautiful garden described as the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I think that's a term that's quite commonly known today to describe something that's like a paradise. <clears throat> Excuse me. But having put them in that place, he gave them just one simple instruction. This is in Genesis chapter 2. And verse, uh, we'll start from verse 15. It says there that the Lord God took this man, this human, first human that he'd made, and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded this man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. So he said, Look, there's this beautiful garden wide range of trees that give fruit and things for sustenance. There's just one thing I want you to remember, and that is in verse 17, but this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shouldn't eat of that. I, don't, I command you not to eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So you think, all right, pretty straightforward. whole lot of things you can do, um, everything you need to eat and to live, but one command to respect. Sadly, um, and again, we, we, we can't go through this story in, in great detail, but the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, who were created and who were given this command, failed that command. So Genesis chapter 3 recounts the story, how that they were tempted by the fruit they, they saw on that tree. It looked good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. And they thought, hey, there might be something that makes us wiser here. 
fruit to be desired to make someone wise. And so there were a lot of tempting things about this. And I think probably one of the most tempting things was the fact that simply it was prohibited. You, you know, if you've got children, right? And you say, look, you can do, you can touch anything, but just don't touch that china cup on the bench. You have all the plastic ones, you can have all the wooden, you can have anything else, and just don't touch. So what do they want to touch? Well, they want to touch the china one. That's the one that ends up getting broken, isn't it? It's the way we're wired a bit as humans. But the point was they failed the command. God had asked them to just accept this, to believe him, that he'd said, if you do eat that fruit, you will die. They clearly didn't really believe that. In the same way as you might say to the child, there's a consequence if you break that cup, but uh, we've just got to find out. Maybe, maybe it won't. Maybe something good will happen. And so there's not a, there's not a full belief in what state it is there. And so they did. If you were to look at chapter 3, um, it says at the end of verse uh, 6, halfway through, she, the woman, took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So they did eat the fruit that God commanded them not. And there was a consequence for that. So in later in that chapter 3, God pronounced a punishment on them. <clears throat> and although, although there were a number of things he went through as he discussed this issue with them, there was, there was one key point that came out of it, I think. Verse 19, he says, speaking to the man, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it, that is out of the ground, was thou taken, for for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. That's a very um, profound statement, isn't it? There's a lot, lot in that. So essentially he's saying to that first man, Adam, well, you were made out of the ground, you were made dust, and because you've now disregarded me, actually, that's as simple as it gets. You're going to return back to that dust one day. So that was God's way of saying you are becoming mortal and dying. Now, as history, when the Bible records, Adam and Eve didn't fall down dead that day. But from that point, they became, as we all are, mortal creatures which would at some point die. So, so up to this point, interestingly, they, um, they would not have died naturally had, they, had this not happened. They were in a state where they were, were not subject to mortality as we all are today. <clears throat> but they lost that by the fact that they disobeyed God. So, but what is the real problem here? It's not the fact that a punishment came. It's there was a cause for it, and the cause was sin. As a quote, you don't need to turn there, but just in, in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, there's a statement made by Paul, the writer, and he says, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's, that's Adam, that's the man we just read of here in Genesis. As sin came through one man and death through sin, so death was the result of sin, cause and effect, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So you might ask the question, yeah, why, is, why are human beings a dying race today? Well, that's the answer, isn't it? This, this chain reaction was triggered in Genesis after the first humans sinned and the consequence was announced that it only took one man and that one sin, but the cycle was commenced. And you might say, well, that, is that really fair that, we're all dying creatures because Adam and Eve sinned. Well, 
Yes, because if you look at the last part of that verse, it says, death spread to everyone because all also sin. So the point is, we all fail. We all sin in the same way as Adam. So the root cause here is not, the problem is not that God imposed a punishment of death. The real problem, the root cause is sin, isn't it? It's people doing the wrong thing and disregarding what God has asked for. So to solve a problem, there's no point treating the symptom, is there? There's no point whitewashing something on the surface. You need to deal with what's underneath. <clears throat> and so if God is going to provide a solution to this, that's where he has to look. But just firstly, it was God happy with that as the creator who put these people on the earth, set everything up nicely and put them in a garden. Do you think he was satisfied to leave it and say, well, gave you the commands, you failed. Look, that's really sad. Um, unfortunately, I'll just have to turn my back now and what, let, leave you all to your own devices and you will just be dying people. No, God was not satisfied with that. He, he is a God, as the Bible describes, who has feelings, who cares for the beings he's created. And it tells us clearly that he, he's not happy with people dying. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, Ezekiel 18 verse 32 says. Um, I won't turn all these up for you, but you're welcome to. I'm just going to read them out as we go. Another one says in 2nd of Peter chapter 3 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So, so the wish or the will of God is that ideally no one would perish, but, but everyone, if they were willing to participate, willing to hear him, willing to accept him, would have an opportunity to live, to reach repentance. And finally, in Romans 6, verse 23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. Well, we've just gone through that, haven't we? A person sinned in Eden. They received what they were told, what they were told to expect. It's like doing a job, getting a wage, getting paid, and the payment was death. But God has a solution that he's hinting at here. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's interesting. So the Bible tells us we all earn a wage by being people that sin and do wrong, and that just wage is death. But the hint to how God's going to overcome that is not by another wage or another exact retribution, you might say, to balance that out. He's got something that goes beyond. He's talking about a gift. So we're going to explore that further. How does this work? What is God's solution? Still as a who, what, how uh, type statement. So God provided a solution. And the solution, as we were hinted at in our quote from John 3, is in his son. So you might recall those words that God sent his son so that all who believe on him might not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave that son. So this comes out in other quotes as well. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you might want to turn across there, which describes the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. Okay, so we have a problem of sin. How is God going to solve that? Well, he happens to have provided a person, a being who did not have that failure, a person who was in fact perfect, who, who did his will perfectly. Come to 1st of Corinthians chapter 15. And the reason I've said to come here is this chapter is interestingly all about uh, the resurrection of the dead. It's where the apostle Paul, the writer, 
is describing the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And as a result of that, it's a guarantee of the hope that we have of being saved and having an opportunity for eternal life also. So he makes that point, though, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture. And that's the part that I'm focusing on here. We said that we all sinned, and that was the problem. Now, there had to be a sacrifice for sin. But God provided the sacrifice rather than us all making that payment and dying and, and perishing eternally. God, in his generosity, has said, no, yes, I know that you provided, you caused the problem, us humans, but he, in his generosity as a father, as the Bible describes him, gives the solution. So he gives his, own, his only son, the only one who did live a perfect life, as, as the New Testament describes, and allowed him to be the sacrifice. And as both the Bible and history attest, the Lord Jesus was crucified uh, and died a horrific death having done nothing wrong, having been falsely accused. So what is that supposed to do for us? So how does that work, it says? Well, God then is willing to save us. He says, if we believe on his son and follow him. So he hasn't asked us to go through what the Lord Jesus did in suffering and dying as our sins actually deserve. Our Lord did go through that as an example of what our sins do deserve and as an inspiration to us of the dedication we should have to him. But what does the Lord ask of us now? Well, Romans 10. Romans is a book not far from Corinthians. If you're, if you're there in the New Testament, it's just the book before, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. And it says here that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, so that's this special person that God has given, we just spoke about. If you confess the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Okay, so we've got this concept of being saved. Saved, you could say, from our sins. So if sins were going to automatically or by default deliver us to death, God is saying, I can intervene in that process. I can, I can divert that. I can save you from that default highway you're on to death if you do something. If you do confess that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God, that he did do God's will and what he did was right, and you believe that and you want to follow it too, God can work with you. How does this work though? We, we, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and that's the reason that he was rewarded and given immortality. How can we who are sinners, how do we sort that out and how can we now receive the gift that belongs to someone who's righteous, who's perfect? Well, the answer is this word, forgiveness. So God is willing to, for Christ's sake, forgive us. Let's have a look at this quote in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Jesus. How? How has he given us that? blessing how has he made us alive with jesus having forgiven he says all our trespasses or sins trespasses in the bible is just is another another word or another type of sin so the real answer the real solution to death is actually 
having our sins forgiven. And God then, in his kindness and generosity, sees us just like his, his, his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the Lord Jesus lived perfectly and all of us as flawed humans uh, won't live up to that. But what God is looking for is the intent, isn't it? Back to that point in uh, Romans 10. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you're trying to follow that, that's, that's what you aspire to and God sees that genuine effort in you, he's willing to count that as being right and to forgive you. So you say, well, that's, that's great um, that there is this hope and it, and it is accessible and that God has made a way for us to be forgiven from our sins and therefore to not only avoid the consequence of, of death eternally, but to be given this really positive hope actually of living in a new world order called the kingdom of God with an amazing person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we get there though? If, if we want to be a part of this solution God's described in the Bible, how do we join in? Well, a couple of simple steps. For in Colossians 2, just the verse before the one we read says this, having been buried with him, that is with the Lord Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Ah, so that it describes this concept of baptism in the Bible. And if we were to explore that further, which isn't, <clears throat> excuse me, our topic tonight, we'd find that baptism is something which is an act a believer undertakes to, to indicate that they agree with what Jesus did. They agree with the sacrifice of Jesus. They align themselves with his death, the death that he suffered, and his resurrection. That's why it describes it as being buried with him in baptism. So we go down into the water in baptism. It's, it's a full immersion, not just a sprinkling. It, it represents, you might say, the death and burial of Jesus. But then we come out again, like Jesus did, to start a new life a new life following God. So that's the act that God requires of someone to become a follower of Jesus and, and to have access to this wonderful solution and this forgiveness that God offers. What is it based on, though? Well, I think it's already come out, hasn't it, that it's based on a belief. So it's not just a matter of someone stepping into the water and um, being fully immersed, or we could be baptised every time we have a bath or a shower, but it's based on something, isn't it? It's a belief. It says when the gospel was being preached in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, verse 12, that when they, the audience, believed Philip, who was preaching, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, then they were baptised. So, so there was a progression there. The audience heard the things that were being spoken by a disciple of Jesus. They were the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and based on their belief in what was spoken, they were baptised. And then the obvious point that comes from that, well, you need to know what you believe. So you have to believe something, don't you? So no, no good just saying, I believe in Jesus. What does that mean? So the Bible clearly outlines what the gospel is. And in summary here, it calls it the things concerning this kingdom of God we've talked about, this hope, this time of Christ coming in the future, and the name of Jesus Christ. And that's not just a, a glib statement that the name of Jesus Christ. It really is talking about everything Jesus stood for, the person that he was, the character he was, the words he spoke, the thoughts he thought, the acts he did, the name of Jesus Christ. 
that's the things that a believer needs to understand to have a true baptism and to partake in this hope the Bible offers. And so the Bible describes this in a lot more detail, and we'd, we'd love to talk to you about that um, further. So if you would like to get in touch with us to explore this topic further or, or any other Bible topic, we'd really love for you to reach out to us on any of those um, channels on the screen um, via our email. Uh, we have a website, Source with Christadelphians, a, a Facebook and Instagram page. So um, we'd really love to chat to you about the Bible and about the wonderful positive hope it offers. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.